So as I said, I want to begin a uh, study of parables. And um, what I'm going to attempt to do is just go straight from from Matthew and and start there and just pick up each parable as I go along. Um, Because there's, there's, there's no definitive collection of parables. You can't just take them out of their gospels. Sometimes you have the same parable repeated in another gospel. Um, and the parable is interesting because you have to notice what it's doing in the context of the gospel and in the context of the larger story, but at the same time, it can operate independently. And that's, um, that's very dangerous with a lot of texts. If you do that with, with certain texts, you could get a completely different meaning. You know, it's like the You've heard the old story of the fellow that wanted to find out what God's will was, and so he thought if he would just flip the pages of the bottle, Bible, and you know, and, and well, or the bottle, uh, the Bible, but he would stick his finger in, and and it would land randomly, and so he goes through there and he hits the page, and it says Judas went out and hung himself. And he said, "Well, that won't work," so he does it again, and then he puts his finger on the spot where it says, "Go and do thou likewise." And so it, yeah, uh, it's a joke. Anyway. Not a good one, but it's a joke. Anyway, the, the parables are um, still have this ability to communicate a truth in and of themselves. And parables aren't even all alike. There's no formula for parables. Sometimes it's a story. Sometimes it's an image. Sometimes it's maybe one or two sentences. Sometimes it's an extended narrative. Um, and that's the way it is with the first one. I'm looking at Matthew 5. And this is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. One of the reasons that I'm interested in the parables is because I feel this need right now to draw closer to Christ. And I know that when we say something like that, it sounds like, oh, well, what are you doing? Are you wandering away? No, I I think we all ought to feel that need to come to know our Lord better. Because one of the things that, um, and we don't have to wait till Easter time to get convinced of this. Um, if, if someone has died and gone on, you can learn a lot about them. But only if they're alive can you learn from them. And so Jesus is someone not only that we learn about, but you can learn from him. And so we believe that his words are living words. And so as I'm reading these parables, I'm trying to listen to him at the same time. And I encourage you to do the same, knowing that this is something that he taught. And it's not just past tense, it's something that he still teaches. And the Sermon on the Mount is quite alive. And you see in these um, chapters 5, 6, and 7, whenever you want to know what's at the heart and the core of being a Christian, I I recommend the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It kind of gets right to it. Well, after he's pronounced blessings in this opening sermon, according to Matthew, this is the first thing that Jesus goes out and preaches. Uh, He has his first message, his first sermon illustration, you could call it. And he says this, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father 
in heaven. The, um, there's a tendency sometimes with parables to uh, dissect them to the point that we try to find meaning in each little word or syllable. Now, I think that goes too far. We have to take it as a whole and understand what the whole illustration is doing. Uh, you don't want to bust it up and break it down into constituent parts until it's, it's nothing. Uh, you want to admire it. You want to absorb it and appreciate what's going on in the whole saying. So we've got salt. We've got light. We've got cities built on, on hills. And what is Jesus communicating with this? This um, text about the salt of the earth is one of the first scriptures I, this just, uh, I memorized. And um, so I've, I've, I've kept it close to me for a long time. Um, it's always intrigued me, this idea of salt and what it means to be the salt of the earth. And usually we say somebody's the salt of the earth, and we mean they're a good person. We mean that they're a high-quality person. Am I, why, do we, why do we get that meaning? I think because salt of the earth has, says something about our virtue. Now, I don't think that there's two categories of Christians. You've got the salt of the earth Christians who are really good, and then you've got your average, ordinary, you know, everyday, tasteless, non-zesty Christians. I, I think that he says, we, you know, because the you here is plural again, you, collectively, you're the salt of the earth. You're that zest, that preservative. And, and people go back and forth. Does it mean that it adds flavor or is it preserving? Well, take your pick. Either one of them works to say the same thing. That, it's a, that, that being salt is being the difference maker. That being salt is that, is that thing which, which adds to in a good way. It brings out the best of the earth. It redeems the earth. And, and he says, um, if salt loses its saltiness, that's a problem. And the parable, by the way, invites you into the image and doesn't just explain things directly. Sometimes people are frustrated by that. Why didn't Jesus just come right to it? Why didn't he just say what he was going to say? Well, I think he does, actually. And I think it's the propositional statements that, you know, if people want to break something down and they want to break it down into ten different points and here it is and I want you to go through this, that has the ability or, or the potential for being misused and misinterpreted even more than an open parable that's going to draw you in and make you confront it. Why do I say that? Skip down. Skip down to verse... Um, uh, 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a bold statement. And when, when Jesus says that, anyone hearing that in his day and age would have said, wait a second. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they excel at righteousness. They are the top. This is as if Jesus had told you, uh, told all of us, maybe we're students in a class, and he says, unless you outdo the A-plus students, you can't pass this class. Well, that's intimidating. It would be like him coming to us like we're a bunch of uh, little leaguers, and he would say, unless you can defeat a professional team, 
you're not going to win this game. Wow, that's, that's a bit much. He's making a point. And, and the scribes and the Pharisees were known for taking the very explicit propositional statements from the law of Moses. You know how detailed Leviticus is. Years ago, we studied Leviticus in here. Some of you may remember that. But you know how detailed it can be. And yet still, they could get caught up in the meaning of single words. Case in point, when they come to Jesus, and you'll, you'll, you'll find this in Matthew 19. It's also in Mark 10. When they come to Jesus and they say, um, So, um, Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any reason at all? They're drawing Jesus into one of their debates. And the whole thing hinged on the meaning of one word in Deuteronomy 24, where Moses gives them the bill of divorce, and he says, and it starts out with the premise, if a man finds anything indecent in his wife, he should give her a bill of divorce, and and, and then the the stipulations go on from there. The scribes and Pharisees, and there were two groups of the learned teachers of the law, who interpreted that, and it all depended on whether or not you emphasized the word indecency, which everybody should know what that means, and, and indecency would be interpreted only as immorality. And so there was a conservative group that said, that's the emphasis. There was another group that was a little freer, and they said, hmm, I think the verse says anything indecent. So, you know, if, if her supper that she cooks is considered indecent, give her a bill of divorce. You know, if her housekeeping skills are indecent, give her a bill of divorce. If you just don't like the tone of her voice, if it's indecent, give her a bill of divorce. That was their interpretation. And you see that all of that came about from simply emphasizing one word or another. So Jesus draws us into a parable where we have to enter into it and we have to say, hmm. We can't sit here and parse the meanings of salt and saltiness because he's just declared, well, whatever salt and saltiness is, folks, you're it. And you can't lose your saltiness because your righteousness has to go beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is putting this image of salt out there to to make us realize that if we're going to be salt, we have to have the quality of salt, saltiness. And some people say, how does salt lose its saltiness? I don't know. I guess it can go bad. Maybe it can't. Mm -hmm. Seems like chemically it couldn't. It doesn't matter. That's the point of the parable. It's, you don't have to have it make sense. It's just unsalty salt doesn't make any sense. Sort of like decaffeinated coffee. Why else are you drinking coffee if it's decaffeinated, you know? We've got a lot of that in this day and age. I'm, um... I'm just waiting for them to put out dry water. You know, that's what I'm, I, I, uh, you know it's going to happen. I mean, gluten-free bread, you've taken out everything in bread that matters. I mean, I don't get it. But, you know, th- th- so Jesus is saying, th- this, is, this is useless. Salt is meant to be salty. In the same way, a disciple of Jesus is meant to have a righteousness that is surpassing quibbling over the law. Okay, so let's go to his next image. Look what he says here. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. In other words, it's visible. It shows. Light is visible. Um, When people light a lamp, do they put it under a bowl? Well, the answer is no. 
I, I've got a fond memory with this one. Growing up, um, he still got it. My father's got this, this kerosene lamp. This thing's a beauty. It's made out of glass. It's big. This thing is big. It's like this. You know, it's got the, um, the oh, what, what's, what's that called? The globe? Yeah, the, 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 the wind. You know, the thing that's supposed to keep the wind from blowing it out. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm failing on the word right now. But it had a big, huge reservoir that kept the kerosene in it. And the thing sat on this um, wooden holder. It had its own little wooden holder. It was like a little yoke. It would just sit there, and the thing would sit inside of it. And it was mounted on our wall. And, uh, you know, always saw the thing, thought it was just fascinating, that big, beautiful glass um, ornament with the, with the, you know, little metal brass fittings on it. Never really understood what it was all about. I'd ask him what it is. He says, it's a kerosene lamp. I didn't even know what kerosene was until the first time that the power went out. And I remember that. And he reaches up and he grabs the thing, um, pulls that shroud off of it, maybe that's what it's called, and then lights it and then puts that, that uh, back on. And man, it lights up the whole room when he, fixed that, when he fixed that flame. And then he sticks it back up in that stand. And I can remember to this day how strange it was to see the light that was right there around us. And then all of a sudden, the whole room brightens up when he's lifting it up and putting it into the stand. First time I ever came across this verse as a teenager, I thought of that moment. And that's how, that's how much of an impression it made on me. But we understand this. Ever since then, I've always known that if you take a lamp or a flashlight or something and you can hang it up high, it's going to light the room better. That, that, that's, a, that's a very common principle. That's why we put lights up above instead of down in the floor. Uh, it, it's going to illuminate the entire room or the entire place. So Jesus says this is a, um, you know, here he is just giving us a very common sense item that we understand. What do you do if you light a lamp? You put it on a stand. Oh. I mean, you can almost hear a discussion there where Jesus is saying, so you're telling me that if you light a candle or light a lamp, you're not going to cover it up and obscure it. No, why would you do that? Why don't you just turn the lamp off? Uh -huh. In the same way, if we want to kindle a light, or if we want to, to ignite the light of Jesus' teaching in our life, why on earth would we keep it to ourselves? What sense does that make? He says that it, he, he's, he's lining out in the Sermon on the Mount what discipleship in the kingdom looks like. Now, that's the, that's the direction of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And so he says, if you've got a light, you're not going to bury it. You're not going to hide it. You're not going to shroud it, you know, put it under a bushel. No, as with song sings, but put it under some sort of shroud that covers it up and blocks out the light. You're going to let the light do its purpose just like you're going to let the salt fulfill its purpose, which is to be noticed. The city on a hill. Um, take a, another skip ahead and look where he's going the direction in this sermon if you look at 721 not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven 
Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. Who enters into the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you track through scripture and you notice the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is never something that we build. It's not something that you and I have to put together or maintain or defend. The kingdom of heaven is God's business. He brings it in. He fulfills it. Because the kingdom is more than political territory. The kingdom is more than an institution. I'm always asked the question. I remember this used to be a controversial question. Do you think that the church is the kingdom? I don't know why that's such a controversial question. Because because if you read scripture, the answer is literally no. The church is not the kingdom. But the church is part of the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is ultimately everything. Jesus Christ has been exalted above every name. So the king rules over his kingdom. There's no place, no era, no location that is not rightfully under the rule of the king, Jesus Christ. Now there are pockets of resistance. There are places where people and institutions live in rebellion to the king. That certainly happens. That's the evil that's in the world. That's the resistance uh, against the rightful rule of God. But the church should certainly represent the kingdom rule. And here in chapter 7, he says the way we do that is by the way that we live. We're putting the will of God into action. So we get another parable, the parable of the wise man and the foolish man. And we, we sing songs about that. He says, uh, verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose up, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose up, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell down with a great crash. Um, That's always a song as kids that we never really paid much attention to the wise man because he was boring. But man, that foolish man, when he got to build his house, we were just waiting because we wanted his house to go splat, you know, and we got to make a lot of noise and clap our hands real big and The emphasis is on the wise man. That again, the logic of this, Jesus is ending his sermon and he's saying, if you hear this, then you're going to put it into practice and that's the foundation for kingdom living. That's salt, that's light. That's what it means to be a disciple. You hear and you do. Which is very similar to the teaching in in the book of James. Uh, where we are not just hearers of the word, but we are doers of the word. It's, okay, the, the foolish man building his house on sand 
it's foolish because it's the same as a light that's been lit and hidden under uh, a shroud or salt that's unsalty. I mean, if you stop and you think about this long enough, this, this business of, of uh, hearing what Jesus says and then building your house on sand or lighting a lamp and putting it under a uh, bushel, uh, I couldn't get away with this back when I was in Lake Jackson, but th- these are like the makings of an Aggie joke, you know, that, uh, you know, where just ridiculous stuff happens and uh, people just assume the, the, they get all these wild assumptions. One of my favorite ones is when the guy comes in to a garage and, uh, you know, old Aggie boy, and he's got, um, and if there's any Aggies in the audience, I'll explain the joke to you later. <laughs> the, uh, um, and anyway, but he, he, um, he, he drives into the garage and he says, hey, listen, there's something wrong with the high beams on my car. He says, uh-huh. He goes, yeah. He goes, I want you to test them, so I'm going to turn the high beam on, and when I do, I want you to get up and stand on the beams of light. And Aggie running the gas station says, no, 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 no. You, I'm not falling for that. He says, because as soon as I get up there, you're going to turn them off and make me fall down. And so... See, it's ridiculous, and that's the way the joke works, and that's the way it is. But why on earth would you light a lamp and then cover it up? Why would you hear my words and not do what I'm telling you after all of this? That's as crazy as a fellow who puts his great big house on sand, and there's no foundation. So these three little parables, the, the light, the salt, the wise man, I think we're starting off with parables that show us that when we study and when we hear parables of Jesus, this isn't just something academic. It becomes a way of living. And by the way, one's not more important than the other. We have to hear it, and we have to do it. And in doing so, though, one step further, it creates a witness. Here's the, here's the verse that will sum it all up. Go back to 5 and... Um, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Okay, now, again, good people can say, oh, well, I don't, I don't want to live for Jesus to draw attention to myself. No, we don't. Or I don't want to, I don't want to do, you know, I don't do good deeds to be, you know, to get recognition. And I love it, that humility that people have, that genuine humility I know people that have done great things. They won't let me tell you about it, not for one second. Um, we had one dear servant at, at Lake Jackson. Oh, she, she did so much to help people. And I made the mistake that preachers before me had made. I praised her one day. Mm, you don't do that with her. She doesn't want any attention to what she's doing. And I came into my office, and there's this rubber snake on my desk. And, uh, and she said, if you do that again, next time it'll be a real snake. And so, um, you know, because she didn't want that attention. And I appreciate that. I, I think, and here's the thing. At the same time, I, I did talk to her about this. And I said, hey, I get it. But I said, listen, the things you're doing are calling attention to a, to a greater truth. And you're just going to have to accept that. And that is what he says here when, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. And by the way, they may not see you, but they might see your deeds. And and that's what matters, is if we're living it out. Do people see our deeds? We don't need to worry about what people see. If it's light, it's light. If it's salt, it's salt. They'll get it. 
So that's our parable encouragement for tonight. Um, we're going to sing this next song, and if you need to partake of communion, that's in room 100. And then after this, Lee Beeman will dismiss us in prayer.